Taylor, don't promise what you can't guarantee. <laughs> you may be glad, you may not be glad. I make no promises in that regard, so why should you? Um, it is a joy to be back with you. It is a joy to be back with you. Um, I can tell you with all assurance that the ministry that we have enjoyed in Northeast Ohio could not have been possible except for the ministry we enjoyed with you in Northeast PA. Uh, God shaped me and is continuing to shape me in profound ways, um, and I owe that, yes, to the Holy Spirit, but to the Holy Spirit working through you, working in my heart. Um, pride has never been far from me. Arrogance has never been far from me. You humbled me, and you do still. I'm not paying you a compliment to stroke your ego, if, although if that helps, good, but whatever. Um, um, I'm telling you this because I don't stand before you worthy. A very good friend of ours and of yours taught me the simplest definition of the gospel that there is. Jesus saves sinners. Just like me. And that's why we're here, beloved. Amen. We're here to see how Jesus will continue to save us. Salvation is not the ticket that we get punched so we are guaranteed that we're going to heaven when we die. That's a piece. Don't misunderstand. But salvation is the entire course of life that begins in eternity in the sovereign grace of God and leads us through time and suffering to enter eternity by the sovereign grace of God. That's why we're here. To enjoy his grace, which, yes, comes at the price of learning you're proud and arrogant and having to humble yourself before brothers and sisters to say, I was an idiot, thank you for putting up with me. And it continues. <laughs> I love you, Bob. <laughs> <clears throat> so, it is my hope and my prayer that as we examine the passage that I think God put in front of me for you, um, I hope this grace breathes in this time and gives you 
hope. Before I read our passage, please pray with me. Father, lead us in the path of your commands, for there we find delight. Incline our hearts to your testimonies, not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes away from worthless things and renew our lives according to your word. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, who is your word made flesh. Amen. From Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, the first chapter, beginning at the 24th verse. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Glenn, would you pray for me, please? Almighty God, in the same way that you filled your apostles with the Holy Spirit so that they proclaimed your word with power, we ask you now, Grant unto David, who is set to minister and teach in your name, the same spirit of wisdom and love and power, that the truth you give him to declare 
may search our consciences, convince our minds, win our hearts, Mm. and produce lasting fruit in the lives of all who will hear. And this we ask, that your kingdom may come in glory for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. So the, uh, the history, the brief history that's provided for you in the bulletin tells the framework. But I want, if I can, to fill in some of the flesh and blood that went into that. I came to Scranton in 19... 19- 84, the end. I was ordained to ministry in that January. I was at that time in the mainline Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA. And it was hard. The denomination, even then, was in decline. Departures from the Word of God from the truths of the historic faith were routinely being made. I entered the ministry having been raised in that denomination in hopes that God would use me as part of a number of people to bring about some kind of renewal, some kind of resurgence of the gospel, that we wouldn't be lost. But it wasn't to be. And I reached a point where I realized I've got to go. Leading to that time, four people, peers, were instrumental in keeping me sane. Ralph Kidwell, Jim Siemens, Paul Tripp, and Glenn Rexinger. And if it hadn't been for those men, I'm not sure I would be standing before you today. They demonstrated a consistency and a faithfulness to the gospel in Scranton and Northeast PA that was singular. They weren't reactionary. They were not fundamentalists who doubled down on rules. They were men convinced that the gospel that Jesus saves sinners is powerful. They kept me tethered to that. And Glenn and I would meet in the kitchen at what was Petersburg Presbyterian Church. He'd walk in with his plastic Dunkin' Donuts thermos. And I'd say... That's enormous. How much coffee do you consume? And he would simply, in his own Glen way, say, what? This is only my second cup. (laughs) That man kept me sane? I don't know. But we'll go with it. Those Mondays, praying together, not 
with any agenda to start a new church. That wasn't it. Praying with Ralph and Drim and before Paul left with him. Those men prayed for the gospel to go forward in Northeast, oh, uh, Northeast PA. It's been a while. <laughs> I used to say Northeast PA when I was in Northeast Ohio, so fair trade. Glenn and I persevered because we needed each other. We needed the gospel. There was another element to that, though. The bright, shining light of our ministry at Petersburg were three teenagers. It was so cool. It was brilliant. In a church, the average age of which was 65. Now, bear in mind, when I started, I was... 26. Yes. (laughs) I was getting there, Laurel. Thank you very much. Man, give a guy a minute. I was 26, my bride was 22, in a congregation the average age of which was 65, my age now. And it's not old. (laughs) That and other lies I tell myself. It 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 was questionable when the little old ladies at Petersburg would come to the door after worship and say, oh, pastor, don't get old. And I'd look at them and I'd say, exactly what are you trying to tell me? What's my alternative? Do you want me dead sooner? I mean, those are my options. Die now or get old. So I'm getting old. But those three kids, Laurel and Mike and John, and then Emily started tagging along. And then Cindy came and Melissa. We, we took three to a youth conference down at the beach in New Jersey called Fun in the Sun. And the next year we took seven. And the next year we took 14, 15. And the next year we took 21. We went from being the smallest group to being one of the largest at this conference. It was so, and it wasn't about numbers. Understand, it it wasn't about numbers. It was the joy these kids saw in their friends joining them to to discover more of who Jesus is. By the time... We finished at Petersburg. When I did finally pull the trigger, and, and, and going on simultaneous to this was Glenn and me continuing to pray and beginning to start the conversation, is there something next, basically? And seeing these kids growing in their faith, The exciting thing about that group was that 
the vast majority were not in the church. They were kids. Shoot, I was a kid. And those kids brought their friends. Those kids wanted their friends to know joy in Christ. So encouraging. We would go up on East Mountain. And this is the point of this. No, it wasn't just to yell at you. The, the, the point was to go up there and we talked. We talked about life. We talked about Guns N' Roses, a despicable group. <laughs> and that's not a moral judgment. I cannot abide that style of music, and they knew it. Um, but we talked. We talked about their lives. We talked about their dreams and the struggles they had as kids growing up in a community where they had never been to the shore. They'd never seen the ocean. Their families, in many respects, couldn't even afford that. From that mountain, I learned from those kids. And this is at the time when they were just starting to open up the area back behind Grace Reformed Episcopal Church and and it was barren rock. But you could see the valley. You know what I mean? You could look out and see up the line and down the line. Not as far as Einan. When we got here, it's like up the Einan. <laughs> I'm sorry, speak English. <laughs> we learned. We caught on. And with those kids, and with praying with Glenn, and seeing that valley, was the beginning of hope. And I mean that as a play on words. It was the beginning of hope in those kids. It was the beginning of hope for ministry in Glenn and me. It was the beginning of what became you. When Glenn and I finally got to the point where we knew we had to try, I would, I would on more than one occasion say to him, Glenn, if this thing goes south, you can hammer nails and saw wood. I'll starve. <laughs> this is what I do. This is all I do. And he said, David, we're not guaranteed success. But we've got to try. And so we did. And he went back to the folks at Scranton Baptist Fellowship and said, this is what we're going to do. You guys need to choose. And we hooked up with the folks who were trying to carry on New Life Presbyterian. Said, you went in? And they did. And I think I represented the miscellaneous refugees from sundry other church settings or no church setting. And we gathered under a mirror ball. 
in a stale beer encrusted ballroom. Lisa kept threatening, my wife kept threatening to turn on the mirror ball when we were preaching <laughs> to, to show the glory of the Lord coming down or something. I, I don't You read earlier the passage from Jeremiah that became the foundation for the name of this church. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, plans for a future and a hope. We believed then and coming back, I believe now, still, that the greatest need that Northeast PA has is for hope. The injustices done to the people in this valley over the course of generations, decade after decade after decade after decade, demoralizing and dehumanizing. It's unforgivable. There's no excuse for what was perpetrated to people in this valley and across these mountains. And the effect of that dehumanization, the effect of that injustice has been telling to the spirit of the people here. People are afraid to get their hopes up because it's not going to work. How many times have you heard people say that? How many times have you said that? That won't work here. Well, not if you don't try. You don't know what will work unless you try. You don't know what God will do unless you trust him and try. That's how this congregation began. It's not the only one. It's not singular. Taylor properly prayed for other congregations in this valley, seeking to do the same thing you are, trying to bear faithful witness to the gospel of Christ. Good. Many more besides. A church on every corner. Saturate the valley with churches again. Go for it. Try. Let what was in your history become your future in this church. So that's the history of hope as I remember it. But it's imperative that we have a proper definition of hope. So let's take a minute here. And think about that. What is a good definition of hope? It's generally an idea that is set against the background of circumstances that currently are faced with unmet longings, unmet expectations, unmet sets of circumstances that are preferable to what we currently face. Is that fair enough? Does that ring true? Yes? Have I been gone so long? Does that ring true or not? Thank you. 
I hope we can get the mortgage paid. I hope I get that promotion, that raise, that, that job or any job. I hope we can heal our marriage. I hope my son, my daughter, my brother, my sister, my mom, my dad will stop drinking. I hope my neighbor will curb his dog. I hope for a better set of circumstances than I currently enjoy. I hope my kids will come to faith. It's a yearning to avoid despair. Never mind, make progress. Don't give up. You can do this. Why are you thinking of taking your life? You have hope. Hope is a disposition of mind and heart that yearns for and looks forward to an un-as-yet-unfulfilled future state of reward, safety, even joy. Paul seems to embrace this understanding in his letter to the Romans. Hope that we have received is not hope, he says, or words to that effect in Romans 8. Prophet Isaiah Those that wait on the Lord, some translations, those that hope in the Lord, will renew their strength. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. They will rise up with wings as eagles. Those who hope in the Lord. So it would seem that the object of hope, even in our daily experience, and in the scriptures themselves, converge on this idea of looking forward to something that is possible, something that can be attained. Yes? Paul does something different here. The only place I know where it's different in the New Testament that I could think of is in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, in the end, Faith, hope, and love abide, these three. I'm curious, still, what hope will look like when it's fulfilled and yet we still hope. It's always been a conundrum to me. Presbyterians should do study committees on this. So there, and again, in this passage that we're looking at in Colossians, Paul does something different. He's talked in his letter at the beginning about hope. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus 
and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That seems to be consistent with the understanding of hope we've defined here, yes? The hope laid up for you in heaven. We're looking ahead. We're looking forward to something that will make it all worth it. All the misery or suffering or frustrations or anxieties that we endure here will be finished there. And that's true. And Paul seems, in a sense, if you read the verse quickly, in verse 27 of what we looked at, to them God chose to make known great among the Gentiles, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, it sounds like he's looking forward to an as-yet-to-be-fulfilled state. But if you read that again, what is he actually saying the hope of glory is? It's Christ in you. That's a present reality, beloved. Taylor, in his Sunday school class this morning, was talking about the already, not yet. That's a true perspective on the New Testament, on our perception and our understanding of time and how God is working in time and space in your lives and mine, generation after generation, moving from the ascension of Christ to his return when all things will be fulfilled, made new, but we have it already, but not yet. We have Christ in us. Now, right now, you and I have hope. Do you believe that? Not enough. That's not a criticism, beloved. That's just a reality. Isn't it? I mean, being honest, what are the days you wake up and you say, ugh, I've had the privilege, the only two times prior to this that I've preached since my retirement have been at um, two um, predominantly African-American churches in Medina, where we live. So cool. Oh, so much fun. I could get used to that. But one of the things that I've noticed in their, if you will, liturgy, is that they will begin by saying, thank you, Lord, for this new day. Thank you, Lord, for the mercy of a new day. Thank you for a day I was not promised, but you have given. Thank you, Lord, for the mercy you will give me and the strength you will show me to face whatever it is that I will face today. Thank you, Lord. That humbles me because I don't wake up like that. And it's not just because I'm stiff because I had back surgery. It's because my heart is stubborn. I don't have enough hope. And yet I do. If I will repent, if I will wake up and say, thank you, Lord, for mercy today that gives me strength today. You have placed Christ in me. 
You have given me hope right now. Right here in this place for this time, beloved, you have hope in you. If you are in Christ, that's because Christ is in you. Right? Come on. That was a good line. You should love that. If you are in Christ, it's because Christ is in you. Right? Thank you. It's not our idea that he is in us. It's not because we're clever and insightful. It's because he is gracious and kind and good and patient and strong. And he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, I want you. Why? Because I do. How many of you parents have ever said to your child, just because... But why? Because I said so. But why? Oh, be quiet. How many times does God say to us, because I'm your father? And that's a good thing. Because I know some of your earthly fathers have let you down. But I don't. I love you. From before the foundation of the world, I have known you by name. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I will never give you up. That's why. I need that. You need that. It's an interesting aspect of this phrase, Christ in you. The phrase, the preposition in Greek is normally translated in, but it can also be translated among. Now, we're all Americans, I think. And if we're Americans, I don't care if you're Christian or not, you have been shaped and molded, we all have been, by the notion of, I am an individual. I have my rights. Constitution says so. Okay, no argument. But the God who made himself known to us isn't answerable to the Constitution. He is sovereign over it. And that God says, to you and to me, we are more than individuals. We are his body. And we can't be his body individually. We can only be his body in relationship. How is it possible for us to love God whom we have not seen if we do not love our brother whom we have? Isn't that what the Apostle John teaches us? And furthermore, how can we love God 
or even each other if we are not loving our neighbor who's not in this room right now. If Christ in us is going to be encouraging to you and me, I'm sorry, Taylor, I move when I preach and I can't, this is really hard. (laughs) Sorry. Thanks. If Christ is in us individually, he has to be in among us corporately. That's how God intends to use us individually and corporately to show this valley where their hope is. Christ in us. Christ among us. And they can't see that if we're not loving them. Does that sound logical? Do you feel it? Is it compelling? Does it move you? And mind you, this is not happy, happy, joy, joy. This is not... Name it, claim it. This is not triumphalistic. If you will come to Jesus, your life will be so much easier. No, it won't. And anybody who believes that's either smoking something or they're lying. How many times did Paul mention the word suffer in this passage? How much have the people of northeastern Pennsylvania known suffering in their history, in their lives, in their homes, in their communities? Beloved, you as hope, you with hope in you, Christ in you, are in the best position to demonstrate to this hard, bitten, cynical area that there is a difference. There is an alternative. Don't you want to know him? Amen. Don't you want to see him in you that you may know the hope of glory? St. Patrick's blessed breastplate is a comparatively famous prayer that is attributed to St. Patrick, and it has nothing to do with shamrocks or green bear. It has to do with a man who was enslaved, stolen from the shores of what is now Wales, taken to what is now Ireland, escaped, went back to the continent where he came to faith, And he asked to be able to go back to his enslavers so that they could know Christ. Wow. And this is his prayer. I'll just read one portion. Christ, shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that there may come to me abundance of reward. Christ with me, 
Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me, I arise today through a mighty strength. The invocation of the Trinity through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. Don't you want that to be you? Where we awake, we arise to his mercies that are new every morning who will give us strength to face whatever we have to suffer for the sake of others. At one moment, early in my ministry, when Glenn and I were still in the praying stages of our friendship, I was particularly discouraged. And we had coffee, surprise, (laughs) at a diner that I guess is now gone. I didn't see it. Anyway. And I was whining. And he said, David, if you knew there was only one person at Petersburg that God would use in their lives to ensure that they were going to be in eternity, would you have still come? I said, that's not fair. (laughs) I'm timid like that. Dang it. Yes. Yes. I would have come for that one person. For that soul. In eternity. Beloved, if you and I were to go up on East Mountain today, what would we see? Who would we see? How would we see them? What would we yearn for Scranton and Dunmore and Peckville and Old Forge? What would we yearn for those people living out in the Abingtons or in the Poconos or down in the Susquehanna Valley? Who do we see? There was a person who actually had the temerity to tell me when I asked if they would support us in church planting in northeastern Pennsylvania. Oh, it'll never work. Why? It's burned over territory. It was crushing. And they were wrong. You are proof positive. They were wrong. God saw you. Who else does he see? What are you willing to suffer for them to come to know Christ in you, the hope of glory? You think about that. Amen.
Steve.